And for one more time, because we only do it once a year, he is risen. He is risen amen. We should celebrate this every day of our life. Amen. What a truth. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Peter. We're going to be uh, focusing in for our time on just verse 3, but I'm going to read a couple more verses in that just to uh, give us a little bit of context of what is going on in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to pick up in verse 3. If you don't, it should be on the screen behind me. But it says, Blessed be the, fa- uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, uh, and kept in, uh, or sorry, be guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ though you have not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. And I tend to pray about change a lot in my life. And you probably pray about change a lot in your life as well. I pray that things would change in my circumstances, maybe in in different areas uh, of hardship that we are facing. And we all long for change of some kind that is is alive in our life because we are unhappy with certain things or we're uncomfortable with certain things. And we long for God to change the situation. We want to be changed. We need to be changed. In fact, I would argue and go as far as to say that this need for change is a universal desire of all humans. Everyone longs to be different in some sort of element that they are pre- than they presently are in this moment. Now, sometimes... This change could be rather small, kind of like we have this big mirror that meets us when we walk into our bedroom, and I go, oh, I should hit the gym, okay? It really tells me that every single day I see myself, I I need to go and lose some weight. I need some change. Or maybe you have a health scare, and you go, okay, maybe three bags of potato chips a night is not a good diet. I should cut that out and pick up some carrot sticks or whatever it might be. Maybe it's cosmetic entirely. It's not even about health. You just want to change something about your body that you you don't like. Others just want to be different. You know, those people who just always desire for something different in their life. They want to experience something different. They want their lives to change. Uh, and, and Or maybe it's because they're miserable and they hate themselves because of who they become through hard circumstances. How many know that when you face hardships, it tends to change who you are at times? And then you come out on the other side, you know, like, I'm not really happy with who I've been. And so you want change because of life's circumstances. Most people can identify with this desire to change, this need to be different, this need to change. And it's interesting. It's an interesting situation because most people don't believe that people can change. At least that's been my experience in talking with people. We tend to believe that people don't ever truly change. They will always be like they are to one degree or another. 
And that's a good question we need to ask. We've asked this question before here, and we'll ask it again. Is it possible for people to change? And there are a lot of different answers to that question, and it all boils down to the fact that any type of change that you and I could muster up in our life is always temporary, right? We might be able to change our looks. We might be able to lose some weight. We might be able to even pick up some new habits and stop some bad habits, but transformation, true change at the level of your nature, your character, who you are, is out of your control. And I think we ultimately know this as humans, that it's out of our control. And that's why we always have this driving, deep desire within us for change. It never goes away. It doesn't matter how far you have come. It doesn't matter how much you've developed. It doesn't matter how much you've grown. You still want to become more of what you're supposed to be. And here what we see in our passage and what's ultimately in our gospel message that we preach is that uh, that we have this promise that real change is possible, but it's only found in Jesus because, oh, sorry, guys, I didn't change. Uh, Only the resurrection of Jesus can change you. That's the bottom line. Only the resurrection of Jesus can truly change you. You can change your performance. You can stop doing things. You can can act like a Christian. You can learn how to have behavior modification, which we're not interested in at all. You can make yourself look all prim, tidy, and neat. But for you to become new, that alone is experienced in the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. So in our passage, we are only going to focus on verse 3, which is a reminder. It says, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this truth that only God can change you, only the resurrected Christ can transform you, that truth is a praiseworthy truth. That's the first thing we see in verse 3. It says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. It's a praiseworthy truth. We should get excited about it. I know we're kind of Baptists. We're like, yay, that's so fun. Right? No, we should get excited about this. This is why you believe. This is who you are. This is where the church stands or falls. If the grave is full, Christianity is a joke. And you're wasting your time listening to this guy yell at you. Okay? This is where it stands or falls. This is a praiseworthy truth. And there are many things in our life that are praiseworthy. No matter how miserable you are, there's something there that you can rejoice over. And the question you should ask yourself is, can you see them? Can you find those areas what are praiseworthy in your life? Because I know as your pastor, some of you are just going through some frustrating and difficult times. And my question is, can you see and identify, even in the midst of the storm and the, and the, and the darkness of the night, can you see the things in your life that are praiseworthy? Because most of the things in our lives that are praiseworthy, we easily overlook. We tend to always focus on the bad. Or at least they're underappreciated. And expressing thanksgiving for what God is doing can feel a little bit awkward because our culture at large has become an entitled culture. It's become entitled. We no longer are grateful for the things we have because fundamentally we believe that we're entitled to them anyways, so why should we express thanks? 
And we project that mentality upon God and the things of God, and it dampens our gratitude for the thing that God has given us that we don't deserve, which is salvation. You and I are not entitled to salvation. No matter how good or cool you think you are, you're not entitled to salvation. You're not entitled to it because you're a good person or just because you're human. No, salvation is a free gift of God to undeserving sinners like me and you. And we need to always remember that it's undeserved because when we do, it will move us into praise for what God has given us and to bless God. And for us to bless God is different from God blessing us, right? When God blesses us, what he's doing is he's conveying to us some type of grace that we need towards us. But for us to bless God, we can't give God anything that he needs because he doesn't need anything. For us to bless God is to reflect his goodness that he's given to us back to him. We're celebrating, we're praising, we're worshiping for who he is. We're extolling him. If you join in in Donna's prayer time, they teach you, I praise you, God, because, blank, blank, blank. I praise you, God, because. We're extolling, we're reflecting back God's goodness to us. And we ought to be a people who are characterized by this type of praise and thanksgiving. We ought to be speaking thanksgiving to each other. If Easter doesn't create in you some type of ethic of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for you, for you who believe, then you're missing it. You're missing it. Thankfulness and gratitude should always be on our lips. We should easily move into thanksgiving as easy as we move into grumbling, right? We move into grumbling so quick, and it takes us so much longer to start praising and thanking We need to thank God and praise him no matter the circumstance because at the end of the day, even if everything is stripped away from you and you have nothing left, you have righteousness and salvation in Christ Jesus that is worth more than anything that this earth, that this life could ever possibly give to you that mold and moth and robbers can steal. You have something that cannot be touched by nothing. It is secured for you in Christ. We ought to be speaking thanksgiving. We ought to be praying prayers of thanksgiving to our Lord and lingering in those moments. If Easter means anything to us, then every Sunday will mean something to us because what we are celebrating every Sunday, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday is just as important as Easter. We should always be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And if Sunday matters to us because it's the day that Christ rose from the dead, every day should matter to us because Jesus lives and rules and reigns every day with the Father. So we will be a thankful people who expresses this in our prayer. And if we're truly thankful and if if this is truly a praiseworthy truth, then we will want to be telling and testifying about this to others. Not just praising God here in these four walls and and, and maybe in our life groups throughout the week, but going out and sharing within our communities, going out and sharing this goodness, this good news to everyone that could hear it. This isn't a new concept for Christians. This is a basic human construct, right? When something good happens to you, what do you want to do? You want to tell people. Like, we, we get as low as, hey, I found a good deal on a steak that wasn't $73 because of inflation. It was 62 right? Like, 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 guys, go, go buy it, you know? And we get excited about it. We go on social media, and we post photos, and, and we, and we pre- present our fake beautiful lives rather than our messy lives. And, and we get excited about the things that are happening to us that are good. 
But may you have the greatest thing in history happen to you when God raised you from the dead into salvation. And some of us are like, mm, I'm not sharing that. No way. No, I'll tell them about the stake all day long. But Jesus, eh, well, if they really force me, if they bring up the conversation, then I'll tell them. So it's a praiseworthy truth, but it's also a merciful truth. And that's the second, or the third point, sorry. Uh, it's, it's a praiseworthy truth. It's a merciful truth because it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his what? According to his great mercy. Not his great responsibility, but his great mercy. According to this, he has caused us to be born again. And his mercy is God's loving kindness. People say this all the time. God have mercy, right? My brothers and I used to do this thing called mercy fights. Has anyone done that, right? You interlock your hands and you twist their knuckles up until they scream out mercy, right? And, and so my brothers would do that and I'd be like, mercy, mercy, mercy. If you say mercy, I'll let go. And they always hold just a little bit longer to see me scream, uh, you know, squeam and cry. Um, but, you know, if you say mercy, I'll let you go because mercy is the relinquishing of a punishment. But here's the thing about God, it's more than that. God's mercy, when we're talking about God, we're talking about, yes, a relinquishing of a, a punishment, but it's not motivated out because you guys have squirmed and cried out mercy enough because it's been painful, but it's been motivated out of compassion and love from the Father. We didn't even want his mercy. The Bible says we're enemies of God outside of Christ, we could care less about his mercy. But he gave us mercy because he loved us. Mercy is his loving kindness that is undeserved and unearned. And this is who God is. In 2 Corinthians, Paul even says that God is the father of all mercies. That's who God is. We're speaking about God on a fundamental level here. It's the nature of God. He is merciful. Look at Psalm 103 with me for a moment. Picking up in verse 13, he says, Lord uh, the Lord shows compassion, oh sorry, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers we are dust. What he's saying is God knows you. He knows everything about you. He even knows those secrets that you have said, I will never share with anyone. I'm taking this to the grave. He knows everything. He knows how you're wired. He knows how you tick. He knows how needy you are. Or at least how needy I am. And this psalm shows us this merciful side of God. Because what God is doing is causing us to be born again. And in doing that, he's bringing about real change in our life through the power of the resurrection. He is giving us something that we could never accomplish on our own, no matter how hard we try. It's mercy. You see, your change in Christ, your need for change is beyond your own ability. And, if, if you're, and it's a need that results in a very keen awareness that you must depend wholly on God and not your own aptitude, not your own strength, not your own gifting. There is no room for boasting for the Christian. There is no room for bragging or you being the big shot or all eyes on me, look at me, I can do this. There's no room for that in light of the resurrection. He eradicates that all. He removes that all. It's all God's mercy in Christ and salvation given to you as a gift, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus so willing went to the cross to die for you. It's a merciful truth. If the gospel is anything, it's this. It's undeserved kindness. Extend it to criminals that don't deserve it. 
And really, they don't even want it. So it's a praiseworthy truth, it's a merciful truth, and it's also a soul-changing truth. We are talking about real change here this morning. We're not just talking about external life hacks that you learned on a TED Talk. You know, how can I make myself believe a little better, tweak the way I think, I'll improve myself. If I do this, it will save me, you know, 0.5 seconds a day, which will add up to all these other things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's completely different than just life hacks or tweaks. The word here translated as to be born again can also be translated as to be born from above or to be born of God. Now that language, born again, born again believer, has a lot of baggage because it gets thrown around like crazy. So let's just for a minute strip some of that baggage. So what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born on high? To be born on high means that you have new life. It's a new beginning. We are being recreated by God, not just refurbished. You're not just, you know, denting out the, you know, getting out the dents and putting on a fresh coat of paint, but the body's still crap, for lack of better words. No, you're completely transformed. You're not a refurbished creature, creature in Christ. You are transformed creature in Christ. We are being changed. That's why we, what we talk about theologically, we talk about regeneration. And regeneration is just a fancy word for a change of heart. Now, change of heart doesn't mean in the sense how we use it, like, hey, I had a change of heart about this situation. I was against it, but hey, I came around. My heart has changed. Now I'm for it. No, that's talking about how you feel about something. That's not what we're talking about. Regeneration is a change of heart. It's a swapping out of your hearts. It was your dead heart that was completely unmoving and unfeeling and cold. And God took that and he replaced your dead heart with a new heart that's alive and bursts forward and beats with love. Right? We always have this picture of we're out in this ocean stranded and God throws out this safety net and catches us. No, we were dead at the bottom of the sea, lungs filled with water, not even searching for God. And he came down, rose us out of the miry clay, and breathed life into our lungs, gave us new hearts, made us alive. It's completely transformation. The new birth is not superficial. It is not cosmetic. We can turn over new leaves in our lives. We can stop bad habits. You don't need Jesus for that. If all you do is come to Jesus for a moralistic or therapeutic bend, you're wasting your time. You don't need Jesus for that. You can clean up your own morals on your own time, and you can get therapy somewhere else. Now, does he help in those areas? For sure. But that's not why we come to Jesus. If all you think you need to do is to just stop bad habits, then you don't need Jesus. I can't help you until you see that you need something much deeper than that. Bad habits, sure, they're annoying. And guess what? When you're saved, they're going to follow you in there too. And some bad habits can even kill you. But there is a need for a complete renovation of your soul. And the only way that happens is by the resurrection power of God, by causing you to be born again. This is a change of your person entirely. It's an interchange. It's a true change. Charles Spurgeon said this about the new birth. He said, uh, he said uh, it's not a change of my name, but a renewal of my nature. 
so that I am not the man I used to be, but a new man in Christ Jesus. To wash and dress a corpse is far different thing from making it alive. Man can do the one, but God alone can do the other. Most of us, we spend our entire Christian life just putting makeup on a corpse. We're not truly changed. We've just learned how to behave in a Christian way. We're all about behavior modification, but not about soul transformation. Man can do the one. It's easy. But God alone can do the other. He's the only one who can transform you. We put on clothes. We try to be as presentable as possible because that's as close as we can be as being different. And we all need to be different more than we are. We don't need to be unique. Don't hear me wrong. But what we need is to be changed. We need to be changed and transformed. We need transformation of our soul so we reflect the image of God more brightly as we are reconciled to God. This change gives us a living hope. It's caused us to be born again. Radical reconciliation. This living hope, all it is is faith. We have been born again to faith. It's a living faith. This faith is life. We actually trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's not just fun little words or a magnet we hang on our fridge. We actually trust him as our Savior. He is our only hope in life and death and from hell. It's a living hope that gives us purpose in life. So even if we are suffering, even if we are struggling, even if all of our plans in life are falling apart, we can still say, I have a purpose. It's meaningful. It's a living hope that gives us a a promise of a future, specifically a future and a hope of a resurrection when our change will be complete, absolutely and finally complete. When our minds and our bodies and our spirits and our hearts and our affections are made whole. And this takes place by the power of God because fundamentally it all boils down to the fact that this is a resurrection truth. It's a praiseworthy truth. It's a merciful truth. It's a soul-changing truth. But it all stands upon the fact that it's a resurrection truth. Jesus died. There is no historical argument against this. There is virtually no credible historian, both Christian and non-Christian, that argues against this. All of them acknowledge that Jesus lived, he died, and that the tomb was empty. But where the debate rises is why the tomb was empty. And what does it mean? Now, many people have a warped concept when thinking about Jesus' death, that he died because of bad people. Bad people killed Jesus. He was just a good teacher, and bad people killed him because of corrupt religious leaders, people, and politicians who railroaded Christ and murdered him. But Jesus didn't die because of bad people. Jesus died for bad people. And there's a big difference there. Now, yes, in some sense, you can make the argument Jesus did die because of bad people. He was set up. He was railroaded. He was innocent. He was righteous. But it's much more than that because Jesus died intentionally. He knew he was dying. That's why he came. He offered himself up on the cross. Nobody takes my life, but I give it up. He offered himself up on the cross in the crucifixion. He died for bad people. He died for the people who drove the nail through his wrist, through his feet, and the spear through his side. He died for the people who were screaming, give us Barabbas. He died for the ones who said, crucify him. And he died for you and me, horrible, wicked people who stand before a holy God only because of Jesus' righteousness, his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
You see, in Christ offering himself up in his own death, he was paying our debt, our penalty. He was purchasing us with a high price. This is atonement. This is resurrection truth because, yes, Jesus died, but he rose from the dead. And in saying that, we mean that literally. Jesus rose from the dead. You can't be a Christian, a true Christian, if you don't believe that. You can be a lot of things. You can be religious. You can be interesting. You can be funny. You can be smart. You can be good-looking. But you're not a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose physically from the dead. And when he did this, when he rose, what he was doing was conquering death itself. He showed us who alone has mastery over life and death. He conquered our last great enemy, the one thing that seems to threaten any further chance of change. He conquers it, and he gives us life. He gives us new life. For example, we're in 1 Peter, and uh, we're looking at verse 3, but if you just quickly jump down to verse 20, it says, He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who though he, uh, th sorry, through, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, your hope are in God. Christians believe various things. You can go to various churches, pull even just various people from these chairs, and you'll hear different nuances on secondary matters. But the one thing that we all must confess is that Jesus is the Son of God that lived and died for sinners and rose from the dead. And everyone who believes in him, and I mean everyone, will be reconciled to God. This is our ultimate confession. This resurrection is what enables us to be changed. Because without Christ's death, we cannot be forgiven. And without Christ's resurrection, we have no power for change to make us new. The spirit of Jesus raised us, that raised Jesus from the dead, also dwells in us. I hope you know that. Romans 8.11 even says, If the spirit uh, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What that means is your change is not just this one-time moment when you're born again. Yes, there's a major change there. Your heart is made new. Your heart is transformed. But there is also this accompanied, progressive, ongoing aspect of real transformation that is happening in your life. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's a metamorphosis that is beginning to take place. It's accomplished by this regenerating, renewing, sanctifying Spirit that lives inside of you. That's not just figuratively, that's literally lives inside of you. He has caused you to be born again, and he dwells in you. He is, he is changing you, and he promises you a resurrection, a resurrection of your own. That's what we're told. The spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, he dwells in you, and he will give life to your mortal bodies. You see, the very end, which is eternity, is life fully transformed, where body and spirit are finally perfected. People can change. I've seen it. I've seen people change. Some real radical transformations, not just external, not just cosmetic, but spiritual. I have seen people change in their nature, but it only happens in Jesus Christ. Only the resurrection of Jesus changes people. So as I close, let me just encourage you with this on Easter. Jesus rose from the dead, and with that he brought with him salvation to all who would believe. And with that salvation, he brings about 
to everyone who believes is change. So if you're frustrated today or you're fearful today because you see your need for spiritual transformation, because you see your weakness, you see your corruption, you see the evil inside of you, if you're fearful or frustrated, this is my encouragement to you. Look to Jesus. Look to him. Don't look to me. I'm a mess. They just let me stand up here for some reason. Look to Jesus. And he welcomes you. He wants you. He actually says, you're the type of person that I have invited because I invite the people who recognize that you're not what you're supposed to be. Right? We weren't designed to be sinners, but here we are. We're supposed to be saints. We're not designed to be transgressors, but here we are. We're supposed to be righteous. We're, we're not designed to be wicked or foolish. We're supposed to be wise. So come to me, Jesus says, and I will change you. I will pardon you. If you're fearful or you're frustrated or you feel guilty, and you are, me included, all of us are before God, then what you need is Jesus. You need Jesus. Because that's the only type of people he invites. He doesn't invite the righteous. He doesn't invite the innocent because they don't exist. He only invites the guilty. So he says, if you know that you are guilty, come to me and I will pardon you. For those of you who are trapped or overwhelmed or thinking that you can't change because you say these things like, look at my struggle, look at what I've done, look at my failure. Man, pastor, just look at my last month or week. There is no victory for me. If that's where you are and that's how you feel, and I get there at times too, I want you and I want me to know this truth, that those are lies from the pit of hell that are speaking into your ear. There is victory for you. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And as Christians, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. It's already been won. It's already been won. Jesus dwells in you, and he promises that he will change you and give you the win. Yes, there will be a fight. It doesn't just magically disappear. I wish it did. Yes, there will be struggle because sin clings so easily to us. It's sticky. But you will not ultimately lose if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, which means God has announced publicly that change and redemption and true renewal is happening and possible. It's happening in your souls, and it will eventually happen globally when Christ returns and sets up his new kingdom. When he rules and reigns, and we rule and reign with him. Only because of Christ and his resurrection. So let's look to him together today. Let's entrust our souls to him today and experience together as a community the transforming power of God that he offers. Amen? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you for Easter Sunday. Father, I thank you that we have this hope that is only found in you. Lord, this hope of life, life here as we live right now, but also life beyond the grave. But Father, I pray, Lord, that you would put a fire under our feet, per se. Lord, that we wouldn't keep the greatest news ever to ourselves. But Father, we would look at what made us go, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We would take that same feeling, that same thought, and Lord, we would share that good news with everyone else that will listen. Father, I thank you for Fellowship Baptist Church. Father, I thank you for your blessing upon this church. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless us as we gather together singing praises because we reflect upon the truth that Jesus lived, he died, 
and he rose again. As people go to celebrate with their families today and tomorrow, Lord, would they bring glory and honor to you through all they say and they do. In Jesus' name, amen.